This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Our last talk for the morning. Hi, everyone. We are in the business uh, quite often of trying to create an experience that people remember, uh, and one of the key things about doing that well is that it needs to be a little bit different as well. Um, this talk is about how you design for that intentional point of difference. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Andrew Wright. So I've been in UX for about 15 years now. And you know what? I want to be better. I want my work to be more meaningful. I want it to make more of a difference. And I'm not talking about e-commerce conversion rates and NPS. I'm talking about designing things that change people's lives. In my experience, people get into UX because they care about human beings. So I hope that resonates with you as well. And so as a result of this, my practice has actually changed more in the last 18 months than it did in the previous 10 years. And I've had a number of non-UX mentors who have challenged the way I see the world and particularly how I think about experience, best practice, value, brand, and story. Alan Kay once said that a change in perspective is worth 80 IQ points. Now, I don't know about you, but I could really use those IQ points. And so, through much collaboration, um, experimentation, success, failure, I've started to gather a set of ideas and techniques which have been making a big impact on my work. I want to share them with you today. I hope that you find them useful. So we're going to start with a story. Then we're going to talk about the concept of purposefully distinct experience and the four perspective shifts that I had to make for that to be possible. Then we're going to change gears and we're going to look at some specific tools and techniques that you can use when you go back to work next week. And then we're going to finish with a couple of examples. It's always fascinating to hear about how someone got into UX. So I graduated high school at the heat of the dot-com boom. Uh, so I did a computer science degree because I wanted to drive a Ferrari and wear jeans to work. You'll be pleased to know I did achieve one of those things. See if you can guess which one it is. Uh, and so in my first day at work, I met a guy who called himself an information architect, and I discovered UX. And it didn't take me too long to work out that that was what I actually wanted to do with my life. And so um, I went and started a master's degree in information architecture on the side. And that period of transition was one of the toughest in my life, knowing what I wanted to do and not being able to do it. If you're transitioning today, and if you're, you know, if you're waiting for your opportunity, I just want to take a moment to encourage you, hang in there. It's completely worth it. And so when I got my chance, there was no holding me back. I worked for a while in Sydney. I moved to London. I got to work with some amazing people. Um, I had some luck. I won some awards. I got to work with some of the world's biggest companies. And I got to the point where I was feeling pretty competent and confident. And so when I moved to Brisbane a few years ago, um, I had a bit of a swagger in my step. Um, you know, I thought I could teach these bogans a thing or two. 
But then I had a crisis of confidence because I started to work with a group of people who really pulled me out of my comfort zone. And it's, it's actually incredible just how challenging and enriching it can be to work with people who view the world differently to you. It, it forces you to see things differently. Dave Gray did a great opening talk last year on how we create these self-reinforcing bubbles around ourselves, right? And I was in one of those. Um, and so all of this culminated in a very specific moment for me. Uh, I'd just been doing some work in France, and I was on my way back to Brisbane, and I was sitting right there in Gordon Ramsay's plain food restaurant in London Heathrow Terminal 5. I was drinking a glass of wine, and I was reading a book on service design. And at this moment in my life, I was actually starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable and insecure because I just started to work with a bunch of people in advertising. Advertising. These are people who I had pretty much despised for most of my career, right? You know the type. They snort coke, they make TV commercials, they dream up horrendous flash microsites, and they basically spend their time manipulating people into buying things they don't need. Right? I wanted nothing to do with those people. But when I actually started working with them, what I found was a group of gifted storytellers and communicators who understood emotion and meaning and connection in ways that I hadn't even begun to fathom as a UX guy. And so here I was feeling incredibly inept and ignorant. And so in that moment, in that very specific state of mind, I came across a definition of service design. Um, and I look back on it now, it's actually kind of benign. Uh, but at that moment, it blew my mind. Service design, developing the environments, blah, 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 in a way that is proprietary to the brand. As I said, I've been in the game for a while. I've done a lot of work that I'm immensely proud of, right? Effective work, award-winning work. But almost none of that work had been done in a way I could honestly say was proprietary to a brand. And so as I sat there, I went back through my entire career, and I had this moment of clarity where I realized that for pretty much all of what I considered my best work, I could have swapped the logo and the color palette for that of my closest competitor and what I had designed would have worked just as well for them. See, what I designed looked like the brand that I was designing for, but it didn't contain a deeper expression of the brand in the experience itself. And to be honest, I didn't know what that really looked like anyway at that time, but I knew that I was missing something. So when I had the opportunity to do a formal mentorship with our national strategy director, I was really hungry to learn. And I've actually had the opportunity to learn from a number of people since that moment. But this is the thing that really crystallized it for me. And the theme of our mentorship was strategy and experience design. And the first thing that Phil taught me is that to be truly strategic, we have to design things that answer human needs in a brand proprietary way. User-centered doesn't mean user-only. To have great experiences, the brand has a vital role to play. So where's best practice fit into all of that? I've always strived for best practice. And best practice is good. It's just not good enough.
best practice makes a great starting point, but a mediocre end game. Why? Because it simply doesn't create sustainable competitive advantage. Anything worth copying will be copied. So what lies beyond best practice? Experiences that are connected to the purpose and the story of your brand in ways so fundamental that they're difficult for competitors to replicate. Experiences that go beyond the uniformity of best practice to cut into the deepest levels of your value proposition and your relationship with your customers and your employees. And we refer to this emerging idea as purposely distinct experience. That means a couple of things. Purposely distinct means it is deliberately distinct. But it's more than that. Purposely distinct experience is an experience that is purposeful in a deep, meaningful, human way. Johnny Ive once said, it's very easy to be different, but it's very difficult to be better. Being purposefully distinct isn't just about being different. It's about ultimately being better. And so to enable me to actually create things that were purposefully distinct, I needed to make a number of fundamental perspective shifts in the way I thought about experience, value, brand, and story. So I want to walk through each of these really quickly and, and, and kind of talk to the shift that I had to make. Let's start with experience. So thinking about experience and reflecting on experience really helped me to see just how narrowly we allow a thing that is as rich, a concept as rich and as, as, as broad as experience to be defined. I used to talk about experience and interface pretty much like they were the same thing, interchangeably. But I needed to think about experience more holistically. Now, you might have seen this going around a while ago. Um, and the basic premise of it is that the product on the left is an example of designing, sorry, the bottle on the left is an example of designing the product, and the bottle on the right is an example of designing the experience. Um, now, I'm not hating on the author, it was actually a pretty good article, but it's a classic example of confusing experience with interface. Which one of these bottles is better for controlling flow and getting source onto food. Clearly the bottle on the right has a better interface. Which of these bottles is a better experience? Well, it depends, right? If you're at Aria celebrating your anniversary and you decided that you wanted some sauce with your high marble score Wagyu and your expensive red wine, which one of these bottles is a better experience? Would you rather a glass bottle with a classic design and a premium feel? Or would you rather have a plastic contraption that farts sauce onto your food? <laughs> what if you're at Bunnings on a Saturday morning and you're picking up a sausage? Which one of these would be a better experience? I'd probably choose the one on the right. Just because the bottle on the right has a better interface doesn't mean it has a better experience. And that's because experience is more than interface. Experience is about context, as we heard Derek talking about yesterday. Experience is about meaning. It's about expectations. Experience is primarily about how something makes you feel. This shows 
the shift that I had to make in how I thought about experience. When I used to say experience, what I was talking about was an interaction between a user and a system through an interface. Now when I say experience, what I'm thinking about is a relationship between a person and the brand through a range of touch points in the context of a meaningful story that's relevant to their lives. That relationship and story is incredibly important because it actually changes the way that people experience the touch points. Story is about meaning. It's the story of self. Why do you use a Mac? Like, really? Why? Think about that. Why do you go to the cafe that you go to and not the one next door? See, your experience of those things is more than just the sum of the touch points that make it up. Those choices are actually part of a larger personal narrative, and they say something about who you are and who you want to be. That's the level that we need our experiences to connect with people at. Now, the next perspective shift I had to make was in value, and particularly in how experiences help to create value. This is Pine and Gilmore's progression of economic value. Um, and basically, it just talks about the fact that as you move up the levels of differentiation um, and relevance, you create more and more value. Now, as a professional designer, I've spent most of my career staging experiences and delivering services. And that's OK. But that's not the top of the value chain. What does it take to get to the top? What does it take to guide transformations? This is what Pine and Gilmore had to say about that. Value is created by understanding the aspirations of customers and guiding their journey towards achieving those aspirations. When Pine and Gilmore talk about guiding transformations, they're not talking about digital transformation. They're not talking about organizational transformation. They're talking about human transformation. Great experiences don't happen in isolation. They happen in the context of a human being achieving their aspirations. Now, if we want to talk about playing at the top of the value chain in the realm of human aspiration, I needed to learn about brand. Now, the way I used to think about brand was pretty superficial, mostly concerned with how things looked. But when I started thinking about brand as the personification of a company, that changed everything. Because brand was no longer about how, uh, how something looked. It was actually about how an organization behaves. Right? The Mad Men days are over. Brand is not about TV commercials and taglines anymore. It's about how an organization delivers its value proposition and what that feels like. And more importantly, what it means. And that really makes experience the new frontier of brand. We are the people who can bring a brand to life or otherwise. So to really understand brand, I need to grapple with the story. 
And we've heard a lot about storytelling already um, in this room particularly. This has been the storytelling room so far. Um, I'm not talking about story for communicating. Um, you know, storytelling to communicate design ideas is an incredibly powerful tool, and I'm a big fan of it. Um, storytelling as, as a generative tool, as a, is, is, as a general tool, is, is you know, a great thing. I'm a big fan of it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about story for meaning. Because stories actually provide our lives with meaning. Our brains are actually wired to make sense of the world through story. It's fundamental to who we are as human beings. Story takes facts and it puts them into context. Everything that you design or deliver is experienced in the context of a broader human story. What's your brand story? Who here is confident that you know your brand story? I'm not talking about your brand's history, although it's particularly interesting it might be part of your brand story. What I'm asking is, why does your brand exist? What's your brand purpose? What are its values? What does it stand for? And most importantly, what role does it play in your customers' lives? For an experience to be meaningful, it needs to be part of a human story. Here's another way of putting this. This is one of my favorite things of all time, actually. People don't want to hear about your flower. They just want to throw fireballs. Your organization's value proposition isn't just the delivery of a product or a service, no matter how seamless or delightful that may be. It's ultimately enabling a human being to become a better version of themselves. So ultimately, all this talk of story boils down to this. This is a wonderful phrase I heard last year at UX Australia from Anthony Quinn's talk. Life is a process of becoming. How can we design experiences that play a role in that becoming? So that stuff makes for great slides. In reality, it's actually really hard to do. So now I want to talk you through some tools and techniques that I've been experimenting with to help deliver purposefully distinct experience across organizations. So there's three basic steps. The first is that you need to articulate your brand story. Then you need to define your brand's role in your customer's story. Finally, you need to translate that story into touch points. Now, some of the ideas I'm about to show you uh, are quite mature in other fields, but they've never really been used in experience design. Some are brand new and still evolving, and some of them may be familiar, um, but can be enhanced by adding this layer of story and meaning to them. So the first thing we need to do is articulate the brand story. And the concept that we use to do this is brand archetypes. Identifying a human archetype for your brand is a wonderful way of articulating the human qualities of your brand 
that you need to translate into meaningful experiences. This is actually a really old idea. Plato called, this, or called these elemental forms. These are the 12 Jungian archetypes. And their use in advertising and personal development is actually really mature and well-documented, but they're nascent in experience design. I've found that these work amazingly well in experience design. Because we already use archetypes. We've been using archetypes for years. They're called personas. And when you introduce a brand archetype, all of a sudden you can design experiences in the context of a human relationship between a user archetype in your persona and a brand archetype. And that's incredibly powerful. Now the second step is to define your brand's role in your customer's story. And the two tools that we use to do this are the hero's journey and the organizing idea. The hero's journey is an archetypal story structure. And it describes the essence of the best human stories. I want you to see if you can recognize this story. A hero starts out in their ordinary world. They receive a call to adventure, and they refuse the call at first. They then receive assistance from a mentor in the form of a gift. They leave their ordinary world, and they cross over into the unknown. They prepare for an ordeal. They face their worst fear. They win a reward. And finally, in a decisive crisis, they're tested on everything they've learned up to this point, and they win a victory. They return home changed or transformed. Do you recognize that story? Did anyone guess Star Wars? If you guessed Star Wars, you were right. If you guessed The Matrix, you were also right. If you guessed Casablanca, or Harry Potter, or The Lord of the Rings, or The Hunger Games, you are also right. That's because this is actually the structure of most great stories. Why does this story appeal to us so much? Because this is the story of human growth and becoming that we live each day. This is our story. We may not literally slay monsters, but our lives are made up of facing challenges, being terrified of them, learning to overcome them, and being transformed in the process. This is the human story. This is the story of becoming. There's four particular elements that I've found really useful for experience design that we can pull out of this. The hero, the call, the mentor, and the gift. I want you to see if you can identify these elements in the following stories. Star Wars, A New Hope. Who's the hero? Luke Skywalker. What's the call? Leia's message. Who's the mentor? New Hope. Obi-Wan. What about the gift? What do you think the gift might be? The lightsaber. What about the matrix? Who's the hero? Neo. What's the call? You could argue about this one. It's probably Trinity's visit. The mentor, Morpheus, and the gift. The red pill. I'm going to do one more. 
I want you to try really hard to get this one right. Your life. I'll give you a clue on the first one. You are the hero. What's the call? What's, what's the challenge in your life right now? What's the thing you need to overcome? Who's the mentor? Who's going to unlock this for you? What's the gift? What's the thing that's going to enable you to overcome this? Now, most brands tell stories in which they are the hero. And that's kind of boring, right? Because other people's stories just aren't that interesting. Does anyone remember, I'm not, I don't think of myself as being that old, does anyone remember slide nights? It's kind of a 70s and 80s thing, I guess. And you'd go to someone's house, and they would basically go through photos of their holiday. And you'd sit there and pretend to be interested. Um, <laughs> you could argue that our whole lives are one big slide night now, with social media, but that's another thing. If you want, to, if you want your brand to actually play a meaningful role in your customers' lives, you need to tell a story in which the customer is the hero. The brand is the mentor, and your product or service is the gift. This is something we've been playing around with, um, and we call it the story platform structure. Unfortunately, I don't have any examples I'm allowed to show you at the moment, uh, but this is the template that we use. And so it has a plot, it has a main conflict, it has themes, it has characters, and it has a role for the brand in the story. When you really understand the role that your brand plays in your customers' lives, that's a great foundation for innovation. Because that means you're innovating from the fundamentals of your brand purpose and your value proposition. And so this story creates the platform or the foundation for the organizing idea. And the organizing idea is an active statement that defines what the brand needs to do. Don't be deceived by its simplicity. It's only a few words. But the organizing idea is the tip of a much bigger strategic iceberg. The organizing idea helps to inspire the kinds of experiences we create. And it also helps to connect those experiences together into a coherent story. It's not a tagline. It's not something that a customer necessarily sees, but it's something that they should sense. Every experience and every touch point someone has with your brand should deliver on the organizing idea. So the final step is then to translate the story into touch points. We find service blueprints are actually an incredibly useful way of taking a story and translating that into a set of meaningful, coherent experiences. Because it helps us to zoom right out and look at the entire relationship that people have with you. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with, with a service blueprint format. Um, for those of you who are not, um, it's really simple. Basically, you have a customer's experience from the beginning to the end. You have a bunch of channels down the side. And where a channel intersects with a step in the journey, you have a touch point. Right? It's very big, but it's also very simple. And so what we do is identify what the key touch points in that system are, and then apply the organizing idea to those touch points to create unique and meaningful experiences that connect together to tell a coherent story. 
The other thing we like to do with this is, is to write touch point briefs that describe at each touch point how that touch point fits into the story, what meaning it creates, and most importantly, what value it creates for someone in their story. Um, so let's take a look at a couple of examples to look at how these tools and ideas actually apply to some real brands to create purposefully distinct experiences. Now, Raise Outdoors was, they'd been around for 60 years. They had a bit of a tired brand. It uh, wasn't really resonating with the customers anymore. And we needed to take what was basically a bargain bin discounter and move them into a space where they could be a serious Australian adventure company. And so if we want to be purposefully distinct, we need to start with why. And the brand purpose here was inspire Australians to rediscover local adventure. So this is about rediscovery. This is about local. So the innocent archetype made a compelling choice here. Now in the adventure category, most brands either play in the explorer archetype, which is about freedom, it's about new horizons, or they play in the hero archetype, and that's about achievement and bravery and overcoming. So already you can see we're, you know, we're in a space uh, that's quite different just to start out with. And so the, the instant archetype is about simple wonder. It's about renewal, returning to paradise. So it fits really nicely. See, this brand isn't about climbing Everest. It's not about dangling from a cliff by three fingers. This is about discovering a new hiking spot with your kids and making some great memories while you do it. So what would the organizing idea be for a brand like this? Because the innocent archetype, when you think about adventure in the context of the innocent archetype, it's really about connection. And that leads to the organizing idea of connect through adventure. And so as I said before, every experience and every touch point that someone has with this brand needs to deliver on that idea. It needs to express the idea of connect with adventure in some meaningful way. Let's look at how that organizing idea, brand archetype, and brand purpose translate to some purposefully distinct experiences across the touch points. Firstly, the physical stores need to be warm, inviting places where you can actually connect with the people that you love. The product needs to have a layer of story around it so it's accessible to mums and families. Posters need to talk about the human connection that adventure brings. Catalogs need to put product into the context of the memories that you actually make as you use them. We're at digital. So when we had a look at what, was going on, what else was going on in the category, what we saw is what we often see, which is category convergence. In this case, junk mail on the screen. And that's where best practice without purpose leads. What would a website that was based on the idea of connect through adventure look like? It would be warm, it would be authentic. It would take products and put them into the context of the human connection that they enable. We're still selling products here. We're still doing best practice e-commerce. We're just adding a layer of story and meaning over it. It would also deliver on that brand purpose, right? The actual features and the ideas would deliver on the, on the purpose of inspire Australians to rediscover local adventure. Right? Now we're talking about omnichannel. 
This isn't just the ability to start a process in one channel and finish it in another. This is actually a system of touch points that express a meaningful idea that deliver on a deeper purpose. That's purposefully distinct experience. Let's have a look at a global example quickly. Toys R Us. So again, we're working with the innocent archetype. This is about the joy of simple pleasures. Uh, this is about playful discovery. And so the organizing idea that the team landed on was play with possibilities. And so there's obvious things that you do for a brand like this, right? There's visual things that you do. You use prime color palette, use oddly shaped buttons and things like that. But how else could the organizing idea of play with possibilities translate? Instead of using a drop down to choose your age, the team actually um, found a girl who had been had, had a photo taken every, every day of her life. And so as you turn the dial, she actually ages in front of you. That's not best practice, right? But in the context of this experience and what this brand means to people, that's actually a really fun interaction. Do you remember the magic of walking through a toy store as a kid? I used to go to Toy World. With my, I used to get $2 a week pocket money. I used to save it up for a few weeks and go to Toy World. Um, and I have incredibly fond memories of walking up and down the aisles of, 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 of Toy World. Um, how can you take that experience and allow someone to have that at home? Right? This isn't faceted navigation. Um, it's not best practice. But this is, uh, this is called JetBot. So it's a robot draft. has a GoPro strapped to its head. And you can drive it around the toy store from your tablet or phone. Right? As I said, this is not best practice. Imagine doing an online grocery store using that. Right? It would be a disaster. But for a brand like Toys R Us, it's magic. Right? That's purposefully distinct. So I'm going to finish with this. When we design from brand purpose for human aspiration, experience becomes something that can be deeply meaningful, even transformative in someone's life. We can design things, experiences that are unique and that deliver sustainable competitive advantage for our organizations. Remember, those who you design for are human. And for them, life is a process of becoming. I hope your work will play a role in that becoming. And I hope that your work will be purposefully distinct. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, time for questions. Who would like to ask Andrew a question? Good, Andrew. Great, great talk. Uh, not so much a question as a comment on the Ray's in-store experience as a recent customer, um, which really resonated with w where you're trying to position it. I was buying hiking shoes, and instead of just having the usual space where you can walk around, there's actually like a little ramp that sort of simulates sort of going up and down a hill, which I thought as a customer was an awesome thing and gave me more confidence that I was buying the right shoes. So good job. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I think just to talk that for a second, I think that the key to a good organizing idea is it needs to be something that can work at multiple levels of scale. It should be able to inspire an entire product idea, but it should also work right down to how you design your in-store layout, right down to how you design the details of a button. So that, you know, that's a nice example.
Other questions? Hey, um, you had some really interesting ideas. I just wondered, uh, you know, around sort of Toys R Us, etc. Um, if you could talk anything about the process of how sort of your team comes together to come up with those. Um, what type of people come in together to create those ideas in the first place? Sure, sure. So um, I think collaboration is a key point there. Um, and I think buying from the client is a key point. Because when, when you're trying to do something really broad, um, you've got to have buy-in at the executive level at least, hopefully the board level, when you're trying to do that kind of transformation. Um, and I think uh, the key thing for me is that um, I work really closely with a brand strategist. I didn't even know what a brand strategist was three years ago. Um, and so now, um, I guess having, having someone who's really thinking about the brand story um, and what it means to someone, um, it's such a natural fit for an experienced designer and someone with those kinds of skills to work together. Um, and so, so I, guess, I guess the answer is really about a collaborative team that has broad perspective that works really closely with the client and has buy-in at the top level um, and I think that's where you can really drive um, the best results. I'm going to ask you a similar question while I go over here to one I asked the YouTube guys earlier, which is how much of a struggle is it to make the customer the hero, like an internal struggle with your clients, versus making their brand the hero? That's a good question. I think, um, I think for UX designers it's not hard when you talk about internally. So, so getting, getting UX designers to think this way isn't that much of a stretch. We're used to being customer-centered already, right? Um, when it comes to the client, um, I think when you show them ideas that are well articulated, they just buy them. And I think the fact that they make the customer hero that the hero, sorry, isn't really a, a specific point that we argue about. It's more that we show them something that's just really compelling. The reason it's compelling is because they're the human, oh, sorry, because they're the hero. Um, and so I guess we don't really have that debate explicitly. We have it around the artifacts themselves. So we, we, yeah, we don't really seem to have a problem with that. Uh, two part. Um, so this whole idea of a brand archetype, how much, obviously you've worked with brand strategists, how much of that process of discovering the archetype is based on consumer insight versus how much the brand knows about themselves or perceives themselves to be? And likewise, when you're talking about an organizing idea, is that organizing idea again affected by what the brand thinks themselves to be or how much of that process do you think is really influenced by the mm -hmm. user or their customer? So it's a very good question. So it's both. Right? And I think this, this is where, this is the bit where the, 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 you know, the user and the brand connect in the middle, so it's both. But um, I think the brand archetype should ultimately be what the user needs it to be. And so um, you know, there should be something about the brand's capabilities or history or certain angle they have on something that leads them in a certain direction, but then that needs to connect in a meaningful way to what users need, otherwise it's pointless. It's not about being totally brand-centric, right? it's about connecting in the middle. Um, and it's the same for the organizing idea. Good organizing idea um, needs to be framed in a way that you can apply it to a customer and it works. But you can, imply it, you can apply it internally and it works. And so it, it's really that connection point in the middle. So with Raise, for example, their organizing idea when you guys worked with them, was that already established? Or was that established as a process of discovering the brand archetype? And then do we need yep. to reimagine? Um, the purpose was already there, and the purpose, the purpose was good because um, it was quite unique, as I said. Um, it was also good because it wasn't much of a leap to go, how could we turn that purpose into something really distinct and meaningful for people? 
Um, and you know, from, obviously from a user point of view, we could be really clear about this is about families. You know, this is about this isn't about hardcore adventure people, right? Um, and so I, I guess we had a good start with that. That was already there. There was already an amount of strategy in place saying that that these were the kinds of people I wanted to target. Um, and then the organizing idea was created after that to kind of connect those things. Good, Andrew. Um, my question's if you think there's any value to trying to apply a process like this if you're doing a smaller project or something, or if it's something that's not worth even uh, delving into unless you've got the, the ear of the right people. Like, do you have to start by getting that buy-in and start top-down, or can you start instituting some of these ideas in kind of a more of a guerrilla way, you know, in, in smaller parts of the organization? Yeah, I'd see this kind of like, um, like Kim was talking about this morning, where you, know, you need to be realistic about your project and where you're sitting right now and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you can absolutely do this in a guerrilla way. You're not, you're not going to change the entire organization if you don't have the buy-in at the top, right? But um, just to, I think as a designer, um, we should be thinking about what is this brand? What does this brand actually mean to someone? And you can, you can do that thinking even without workshopping it with the, with the CEO, right? You can, you can kind of form a point of view on that, and that can actually guide design decisions that you make. So um, you can absolutely start on wherever you are. Um, and then you know, to, to make the really big transformational stuff, you need that buy-in at the top level. Um, but yeah, I think this should be a natural part of our process. We should always think about this, right? Because ultimately what we're creating is a value proposition for someone, not just a usable experience. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think it, I, it, I'd see it as being a, a slightly more mature way of, of, of approaching experience design. Please join me in thanking Andrew. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.